Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and a planet. My name is Kevin Falta. I'm a professor, a podcast host who really cares about science communication and wants you to know the current events that are happening in the field of biotechnology. Today, we're going to venture into some space that we have not yet ventured into, and I, I really feel we neglected. Because one of the coolest organisms in the world in terms of uh, being kind of at the front edge of a lot of different processes is algae. From its potential use in animal feed to its ability to sequester carbon to be able to produce biofuels and many other different products, algae has been a, an, an organism that people have looked at very carefully for quite a few years now. And it's completely inexcusable that I have not covered it here yet. So, with that in mind, we have an expert, Dr. Stephen Mayfield, who's a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and the director of the California Center for Algae Biotechnology. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thanks for having me, Kevin. This is great because I, I really appreciate um, uh, you as a scientist, but I really have enjoyed all the times we've gotten to hang out in the last few years, and just I've learned so much from you. So thank you for doing this. Yeah. Can I, can I start the podcast by correcting you on something? Sure. So you said we haven't discussed algae or thought too much about algae. Every single one of us every day has an algae product that we use. Guess what that is? Um, let me see. Every single day. Every algae. single day. Uh, it's, it's either agarose or ice cream or something. Uh, well, it could be any <laughs> one of those, but it turns out it's gasoline. So 100% of our petroleum is ancient fossil algae. It's not melted dinosaurs. It's not plants. Those became coal. All crude oil comes from algae. So every time you drive a car, every time you pick up a plastic spoon, every time you have touch any chemical, you are touching ancient algae oil. Wow, that's really cool. I did, I'd say I was one of those uh, firm believers that when I was putting gas in the car, I was uh, putting in cycads and <laughs> weird, <laughs> you know, weird old dinosaur plants. And that, 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 you know, that's what I thought I was doing. Exactly. Everyone thinks it's melted dinosaurs. And in fact, all fossil fuel is much older than the dinosaurs. They're only go back about 65 million years. And some of the crude oil that we pull out of the ground goes back 350 million years. Wow. So that was only algae. Back then it was only algae. Yeah, there wasn't any kind of dinosaur algae or anything. There, like that there weren't there weren't ah. any large organisms. <laughs> so let, you know, let's really start there with the fundamentals. You know, and and that's a great point that you make. And uh, if we were to describe what algae is to somebody, what is it, and why is it an attractive system to harness for the production of useful biomolecules? Well, so the little literal definition of it is really simple. It is just aquatic photosynthetic organisms. So it's just plants 
that live 100% in water. We have both microalgae, that's the ones I primarily work with, the little tiny guys that you can barely see, and then we have macroalgae or kelp. And both of those fall into algae. And the reason they are cool things and the reason we think about them is because they are the most efficient photosynthetic organisms on the planet, much more efficient than terrestrial plants like corn or sugarcane, etc. And because they dominate the oceans, uh, there's just a lot of stuff that they make that we use. You mentioned ice cream. That's just one of them. Sushi, the wrapping on sushi, uh, nutraceuticals, of course, the list goes on and on. So you say they have very efficient photosynthesis. What is it that makes them so efficient? Well, so, you know, even though we worry about climate change now and the increase of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, in fact, photosynthesis evolved at a time when the carbon levels, the CO2 levels were much higher in the atmosphere than they are today. Uh, So when cyanobacteria showed up about three and a half billion years ago, 20% of the atmosphere was CO2. Animals could not live. Not, not only us, microorganisms couldn't live back then. There was no oxygen or very little oxygen and a huge amount of CO2. Cyanobacteria showed up. They turned all of that CO2 into fixed carbon. That's why we have petroleum and oxygen. And once that oxygen became available, then the rest of the world, you know, the rest of the animals could show up and survive, right? So what does that mean? What that means is that the enzymes that fixed carbon evolved at a time when the CO2 levels were much higher. So plants are actually inefficient at the level of CO2 we have in the atmosphere today. 400 parts per million, at one time it was 20,000 parts per million. So believe it or not, the enzymes that fix CO2 do much better at higher CO2 levels. Well, in water, you can saturate water much higher concentrations of CO2 than 400 parts per million. And that's commonly what happens, right? The CO2 levels are much higher in the oceans. They're much higher in uh, aquatic than they are in in the air. And therefore, algae that are grown there are more efficient than plants. So it's not that the enzymes are different. It's not that the sunlight is different or any of the rest of the parts of photosynthesis. It's simply that there's higher levels of CO2, so they grow faster. Uh, Do we see evidence of that in the ocean's in reality, that as our CO2 levels go up to 400 parts per million, that we're seeing much more algae that's uh, sequestering it? Yeah, unfortunately, that doesn't work as well in the oceans because the first thing that happens when you increase CO2 is you acidify the oceans. So a long time ago, the algae were used to those high acid levels and they did well. They will again. You know, my father was a physicist. He always used to laugh at me when I used to tell him how oh, look what we're doing to the planet. And he would laugh and say, yes, but you have to remember on a planetary scale, what humans do is trivial, right? We, we, things will evolve to adapt to it. And, and he's right, but in the short term, you know, we pay a heavy price for that. So in the short term, unfortunately, the, the ocean acidification is kind of much worse for the corals and the algae. In the long term, they would do better. But where you really see this is, believe it or not, in in a greenhouse, if you fill a greenhouse up with 800 parts per million instead of 400 parts per million, those plants will grow much, much faster than they do outdoors, right? And they therefore sequester more CO2. It's just not a practical solution. 
So what are some good examples of the molecules that are currently being produced by engineered algae? So genetically engineered algae, but let's start without genetically engineered algae, just regular old algae. What, what, what are they making that is so useful for us uh, at, at maybe new industrial scales? Well, the kind of interesting thing is that for whatever reasons, and, and I can't tell you what they are, algae elected to store their energy in the form of lipids, fats and oils, as opposed to carbohydrates. So most plants, you know, their storage, some seeds have storage oils, soybean, you know, canola, et cetera. Most of them, corn, rice, sugarcane, they store their energy in carbohydrates, right? Algae stores theirs in lipids. So the products that we think about are anyone that are formed from lipids. Well, biofuels are number one on that. A hydrocarbon, you know, which is a fuel, that comes from lipid. It could come from fatty acid. That's biodiesel. Could come from isoprenoids. Could come from any of those. So I would say first and foremost, we think about products that are lipid-based. Uh, the biggest selling in terms of dollars that happens to be the omega-3 fatty acids. Those are lipids. That's a, almost a billion dollar a year market now. All of that is produced from algae. Okay, so this is kind of completing the circle. If you're able to make uh, lipid products in algae, which, uh, you know, which, which you say gasoline and all of our uh, petroleum-based products are from algae, now we're using algae to potentially make fuels. Uh, why has it taken, so, or is it taking a long time for us to be able to do this at scale? Or is it just cheaper to pull it out of the earth? It's it, it, pure economics. We actually showed many years ago, 10 years ago, uh, a company named Sapphire Energy that I had founded had shown that you could grow up algae, that you could extract the lipids, and you could convert that in a, in a regular traditional fossil fuel refinery. You could get out gasoline or diesel from that. At, by, by 2015, they were down to about $250 a barrel. The price of oil at that time was a little over $100 a barrel. They were kind of extrapolating, hey, in the next three or four years, because of our improvements and efficiencies of growing algae and just improvements in extraction, et cetera, we think we'll get down to about $90 a barrel. And, it, and at that point, we should be competitive with fossil fuel. And then, of course, as we gain economies of scale, that'll get even cheaper. But as you'll know, and many of your people who listen to your podcast will know, the price of oil collapsed in 2015. Um, that actually was a war, <laughs> a petroleum war uh, between Russia and um, the Saudis. And they just drove the price down. They flooded the market and the price of oil went from $100 a barrel down to as low as $33 a barrel. Right now it's hovering around 45 bucks a barrel but it was just impossible for biofuels to compete at that cost. So we could do it. We could grow algae, we could extract the oils, we could convert those oils to gasoline and diesel, but we just could not do it at the level of fossil fuel, especially not when it's at $40 a barrel. Well, maybe this gets into kind of a political question, but you know, the difference between $100 oil and $45 a barrel oil isn't that huge. And we've been there before and we've survived it. If it was a question of a completely renewable source of oil from algae, doesn't that make a whole lot more sense? I mean, you can double that stuff every 24 hours, right? It, it, it does. But here's one of the little ironies, right? Is that we spent all this time and money um, developing algae, domesticating algae, so that we could produce biofuels from it. 
but actually we were unlikely to ever sell any of that for biofuel. And the reason we were unlikely to sell it for fuel was because nobody who makes a product sells it to the lowest bidder. They always sell that product to the highest bidder. If, if I grew cotton and put it on the market and somebody said, I'll give you $6 a bushel, and somebody else said, I'll give you $10 a bushel, you wouldn't just sell it to the person who offered six. Well, the same is true about algae and biofuels. Once you grow algae biomass and put it on the open market, people who want it for animal food or fish food or omega-3 oils or renewable polymers, they can afford to spend much more on their raw materials than the refineries for oil. So until we saturated all those other markets, we were never going to sell this stuff for fuel. And that's, in fact, what we're doing right now. We're, we're, we're producing more algae biomass than we ever had. But where's it going? Human nutraceuticals, fish food, uh, cow feed, and now polymers, right? Renewable well, that, polymers. Well, that's really cool. So the other question, I guess, on that, you mentioned domesticated the algae. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, there is no product that you buy today that we take out of the wild, right? Like if you go to the grocery store and buy corn, corn today doesn't look anything like its, its uh, ancient you know, ancestor, Teosente. We had to domesticate that. And we did that actually with corn. We know exactly how we did that. It took about 7,000 years of breeding and selection to turn the little tiny uh, you know, seed head of Tiacente into the enormous thing that all of us would recognize now as B73 corn. And the same is true, by the way, for chickens, for cows, for rice, you name it. There is no commodity, right, that, that we haven't domesticated, that we haven't either through breeding or selection or engineering converted into a platform that is much more efficient at producing what we want. Remember, in, in you know, the, the natural environment, things aren't growing up to feed us or to make fiber for us, right? These are all parts of their normal process for passing on their genes to the next generation or for competing for resources or et cetera. So we had to kind of alter where they put their energy and have them put more energy into the products that we wanted. And that process in general can be referred to as domestication. No, really cool. We talked about um, domestication of soybeans today in my class. Yeah, exactly the same. When you mentioned that they were um, domesticated, um, so these were algae that were taken from the wild and that you're actually breeding algae? Yeah, that turns out to be, you know, like all of us, and Kevin, I'm sure you're in the, the same boat as well, right? We spent our careers learning, you know, molecular biology. And then, of course, partly because of the hubris of man, but partly just because of, you know, we all think we're so smart, right? Oh, I know exactly what genes I'm going to pull out from this algae and put it into that other algae so it'll, it'll make exactly the product I want. And certainly there's a place for that, right? Um, but there's a lot of genes that we don't really know what they do, right? Like just for an example, in the algae that I work on, which is Chlamydomonas, probably the best characterized algae on the planet. There are about 15,000 coding regions, 15,000 genes. And maybe we know what 500 of them do, maybe a thousand of them, something like that we know. 
the majority of them, we don't even know what they do, right? Like we can kind of look and say, oh, they're homology to this and that, right? So it's very difficult to do engineering when most of the genes, you don't know what they do. But in breeding and selection, what do you do? You cross two algae together. You have one algae that maybe has a good trait you want, high levels of lipid and high levels of omega-3, but, oh, it's susceptible to being eaten by predators. You have another relative of it that is resistant to predators, but doesn't have very high omega-3 levels. So what do you do? You cross those two together, and then you try to find an individual that has both, that has both high levels of omega-3 and resistance to predator. That's breeding and selection. That's just like you were saying. That's exactly what we did in corn and soybeans and everything else. So that's what we do in algae. It just seems kind of abstract to me that as a scientist who is familiar with breeding and how it's done, that that how you breed algae, and I know we've made it yeast and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Is it kind of the same thing that you just are able to isolate specific genotypes and combine them and then identify individuals that carry traits of both pa- or you know, genetic markers of both parents? Yeah, it, it's exactly the same. The difference being that almost all of the plants and animals that are out there we have a pretty good feel for sort of sexual reproduction, right? Meaning we, we recognize what females, what males are, even in plants, right? Corn, you know, that's a really obvious one, right? You have the tassels in the ear, so you recognize that. Microorganisms, it's a little tougher because generally they don't look different. And sometimes you can only find one type, you know, we call them mating type plus and minus like they do in yeast. A and alpha, I guess they call them in yeast, right? We call them plus and minus in algae. So with the algae that we know how to do breeding, and there's only about four or five species out there that we can do breeding in, those, it's super easy. You go to different geographic places around the world. You collect an algae, a clamidomonas. We get one from Japan. We get one from Europe. We get one from the middle of America. Even though they're the same genus and species, boy, they certainly phenotypically look different. They have different growth rates, different levels of pigments, different levels of oil. And then we can cross those together and their progeny will more or less randomly assort all those different traits. So then the trick becomes, how fast can I screen those? Can I, can I find ways to identify out of many thousands or maybe even many millions of progeny, the one that has exactly the right combination of genes that give me the phenotypes that I want? That's really cool. I never would have thought of that, it, it, but it makes sense now. Are there any um, kind of extremophile uh, clamidomonas that lend certain traits that you find really cool? Like, you know, you pull them out of hot springs or out of Antarctica and they uh, really do things differently or bring a new suite of traits to the table? Well, what we've discovered over the last couple of years, which in retrospect is kind of one of those, you know, oh, come on, obviously, right? <laughs> but But now we recognize it, but then we didn't which is if you get an extremophile, so if you can get an algae that grows in high salt or high pH, it's very likely that you, can, you won't have, number one, competitor algae that grow up in the same pond, and two, you get rid of a lot of the predators that come along and eat it. So what we natu- normally select for now is we look for algae that can grow at pH 10 or above. And if you can find or select an algae that grows at pH 10.5, then it's very likely that there aren't going to be many of its predators, ciliates or bacteria or whatever, that will grow at that high pH, makes it much easier for you 
to grow it outdoors. And remember, algae is just like a plant, except it lives in the water. It's photosynthetic. If you ask a farmer, what do you worry about? Well, first he worries about rainfall. You know, am I going to get enough water to keep my plant growing? And then the second thing, I worry about predators, right? Like are our fungi going to show up? If it's corn, you know, is corn blight going to show up? If it's cotton, are bull weevils going to show up? Everyone's out there for a free lunch to eat it. So anything that you can do that gets rid of some of those predators, an enormous advantage and a big increase in your productivity. That's really cool. So we're, we're talking with Dr. Stephen Mayfield. He's a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and also the director of the California Center for Algae Biotechnology. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Once available, your company or organization can absolutely benefit from more COVID-19 compliance with the vaccine. But will your employees get the jab or follow the guidance from some wacky website? Broad vaccination benefits everyone, and it's critical to returning to our economies to normal, one business at a time. Plus, it's good for a healthy community. But vaccine hesitancy is still very real and threatens our economies and communities. Dr. Kevin Folta and Dr. Asha Brunig have developed a COVID-19 communications program to inspire vaccination through education. This one-hour empowering seminar gives your colleagues or employees the tools they need to effectively communicate the pandemic's realities and remedies with their family and friends. It is a train-the-trainers event deputizing your employees to take leadership roles in curbing the pandemic. The program covers communication strategies, why the vaccine is necessary, and the benefits that come from a healthy and vaccinated population. Plus, your questions are answered. The presentation has already been presented to over 10,000 people in leading corporations and municipalities. For more information, check out the COVID-19 Communications tab on KevinFolta.com. And now back to this week's podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Stephen Mayfield. He's a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and the coolest job in the world, the director of the California Center for Algae Biotechnology. And uh, we're talking about bioengineering algae. And so far, it's been setting the table with what algae is and why it's so useful, why it's such a cool uh, system to work in. Um, but now let's talk about some of the applications. And... What um, So I, when I saw you speak one time, you had a bunch of flip-flops that were only size 9 mm -hmm. and, um, <laughs> mm -hmm. and surfboards that you made from algae, from a plastic that was made from algae. Do you make any non-beach-related items from the polymers? What, so, so we do now. Um, and, and the reason we picked those, Kevin, as you, of course, know, is because here in San Diego... As far as we know, doesn't everyone surf and go to the beach every day, just like <laughs> we do? What? People don't do that? So they were kind of natural products for us to pick up. 
the, the, the second reason we went after those is because we wanted products that people could hold in their hand, you know, physically touch and recognize that, hey, we can actually make sustainable and now we've shown biodegradable products that are still just as functional as the ones made from petroleum, right? And so we picked polyurethanes, um, A, partly because of flip-flops and surfboards, but also partly because we knew that there was a chance with polyurethanes, which are one type of many plastics, uh, polyethylene, polypropylene, polyvinyl chloride. Uh, you know, your audience will know many of these names, but polyurethanes are a big product. It's what car tires are made from. It's what every seat, every cushion of every seat, whether it's a car or the chair you're sitting on now, very likely that the cushion that's underneath that is a polyurethane. Uh, the midsoles of shoes, all shoes, not just flip-flops, running shoes, those are polyurethanes. So we started on those because they were big products, but also because polyurethane, theoretically at least, we could keep it biodegradable. And what we've shown over the last year, in fact, we published a paper last August uh, showing that, in fact, our polyurethanes are fully biodegradable. Just got a report back, uh, surprisingly enough, today uh, from something called ASTM, which is the certification you get to show something is compostable and our flip-flops or shoes compost in about 180 days in a compost pile. So about six months, if you, at the end of their life, if you were to take the shoes, the running shoes or the flip-flops and throw them into your compost pile, they would completely degrade and go back into compost in about six months. So um, that was part of the reason we picked it. Um, and then, like I said, these are not trivial markets. Uh, it's about a $40 billion market um, just in polyurethanes and shoes. If you take into account mattresses, which are also polyurethane, if you take in foam cushion, it's about a $180 billion market. So pretty big market, and we thought a pretty good place to start. That's really good. But I, I seem to remember, and you can tell me if you want to talk about it or not, but it seems like a lot of your impetus for thinking about what was uh, plastic and break and what would biodegrade in terms of uh, plastic, like, product polymers mm -hmm. uh, came from uh, you taking a trip to India or flying to India for a conference or could you, could you share that story? Yeah. So I, I was invited to a, a conference in India because they were trying to kind of wrap their heads around how do we allow transgenic plants into India? Because like the Europeans, they had, they had come out and said, Oh, we, we don't want transgenic plants. But then it turned out that um, somebody introduced a transgenic um, eggplant and uh, it just boomed. I mean, it just worked so well that the farmer's incomes went up about 300% in one year. And at that point, you know, they sort of looked at this and they said, hey, wait a minute. It's actually unethical for us to say we can't have transgenic plants when it is so dramatically improving the lives of farmers. Right. And we know there's no health you know, there's no adverse health consequences of eating transgenic plants, right? But anyway, they were going to have a meeting. I had done a study with transgenic algae and introducing it outdoors, and we had followed the genes to see how they propagated in the environment. So they thought, oh, this is really interesting. We should have, you know, Steve come over here and tell us about that because it was a, it was a paper that we had published. But the meeting was only 24 hours long. <laughs> I'm like, 
I'm going to fly all the way to India for a meeting that literally lasts 24, like it started one day at noon and ended the next day at noon, right? But I really wanted to go. I thought it was important to present that. So I told him, I'm going to come there. But you know, if I'm flying all that way, I'm going to someplace between here and there, I'm going to take a little vacation. And they're like, fine, we have, just tell us where, you know, we'll put it on the ticket. So I ended up going to the Maldives or the the Maldives, as the French say, which is a a group of islands uh, south of India in the middle of the Indian Ocean and really about a thousand miles from India and maybe 1500 miles east of Africa. So really in the middle of nowhere. And I went on a boat and we sailed around for 10 days and I went surfing and fishing and scuba diving. It was a bucket list trip and I loved it. But the last day of the trip, uh, the captain came to us and he said, hey, it's your last day. We got to drop you off at the airport tonight. Is there anything you guys haven't seen yet that you'd like to see? And so I just sort of said, hey, could we go to an island that nobody has been on? And he said, well, I don't know if nobody's ever been on one, but I can certainly take you, you know, a little bit out of the way on the way back to the airport. But I take you by some islands that I guarantee you nobody set foot on in four or five decades. We said, perfect. (laughs) So we stopped by this beautiful little island. It wasn't maybe, oh, I don't know, not even two or three acres around ringed by a reef. And we pulled up and anchored off it and took the little skiff into the island just to kind of sit there and have breakfast and, you know, just sit on an island nobody else had ever been on. And just a beautiful little island. When we walked, and of course it was so small, you could walk around it in 20 minutes. So, you know, we're like, well, let's walk around the island. So we walked around the island. Well, when we got to the windward side of this island, it was covered with dead flip-flops and water bottles. And I, I have to say, I sat down and I don't think I've ever been so depressed in my life. To sit on this little island, it was about 12 miles north of the equator in the Indian Ocean, a thousand miles away from any population center. And yet it was covered in plastic trash. And we sort of sat there and looked at each other. And, you know, I, I remember one of the guys saying, really, this is what we've done to our planet And I think it really struck home to me, you know, how could we let this happen? And so after that, I just came back and I said, you know what? We knew already that we could make polymers. We had already made the surfboard by then. But when I saw that, I said, okay, we've got to make biodegradable shoes. Believe it or not, there are 25 billion pairs of shoes made worldwide every year. Think about that. That's four shoes for every human being on this planet every year. And where do all those end up? They end up in landfills or worse, in the ocean where they never biodegrade. So we looked at that and said, you know what? We're going to make biodegradable shoes and flip-flops, sandals really, but same thing, right? Instead of being a three-point through your toe, it's a strap that goes over your foot, but it's the same thing. It's basically a foam pad of urethane with a harder outsole on it, you know, an abrasion resistant outsole, and then some strap to hold it on your feet. And there's probably 7 billion of those made every year on the planet. And they only last less than a year. And they end Mm -hmm. up in landfills. So we're like, hey, let's make that shoe. And then at the end of its life, rather than ending up in a landfill, it can end up in a compost pile and go back and be turned back into CO2 and fertilizer for plants. So that's what (laughs) we did. And it works. (laughs) Oh, are they commercially available? 
So I cannot tell you the name of the company oh, okay. uh, because they're, we're still under top secret with them. We're into production down in Mexico. Uh, production's going well now. They should be on the market by spring. You know, they're, they're, it's funny in the shoe industry, you have seasons. So if we don't have everything ready to go by May, then we're probably going to have to hold it off until September. So then they come out for a Christmas market because all, all the beach shoes and the first one we're making is a flip-flop. Um, that has to be ready by May so they can sell it so it can be in stores by June. We think we'll make that, but if we don't, we'll certainly be on the market by Christmas time. <laughs> That's super cool. That, you know, that really makes me happy to hear that. So if you had a, your choice to make any single product from algae-based polymers, uh, you know, flip-flops, surfboards, what would your best product be? So believe it or not, the best, the most important product that I think we can make is actually not polymers and not plastics. I think those are really important. I think they can do enormous things to help the world. But I think the thing we really need to look at is can we use algae for food? If you look at our impact, human's impact on this planet, as much as burning fossil fuels in our cars has contributed to climate change, certainly made a mess of the atmosphere, right? But if you look at how fast we're cutting down the rainforest and how fast we're fishing the fish out of the oceans, I would say the most important product that we could make from algae is going to be food. And when I look at these new textured vegetable proteins, Impossible Burgers, uh, Beyond Burgers, when I look at those and think about the dramatic impact they can have on the environment, think about this. Algae are at least five times more efficient than plants at producing proteins and oils, which is what those textured vegetable burgers are made from, right? It's just vegetable protein and vegetable oil. If we could make those from algae, I think that will actually be a game changer for the planet. But while we're waiting to get there, you guys should all be buying flip-flops and surfboards made from algae. <laughs> what about the idea of, um, of using algae just for animal feed and then eating the regular hamburger? Is that, is that a step in the right direction? That's absolutely a step in the right direction. It's not as efficient when, when you take a plant protein and convert it to an animal protein through a, like if you do it through cow, you know, your, your 80% of that energy gets lost someplace. Chickens and fish are better. They, 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 you know, maybe 50% of the protein you put into them gets converted into it. So yes, it's certainly better than feeding them, you know, soybeans or corn, but the best would be, you know what, let's just go straight. Let's just texture algae protein so that we can't even tell the difference between that and hamburger, right? Then we still get to eat hamburgers that we all love, but it's a wonderful thing for the environment. And we can probably make them healthier for you too at the same time. Yeah, you know, I think that we're already there. I mean, you were, you and I were both at that yes. meeting and we saw those examples. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty impressive. Yeah. And it really changed my mind towards a lot of those products. And uh, so I, I guess we'll see what happens, right? <laughs> well, and, and the funny thing is, Kevin, and you probably know this, once you've eaten them a few times, like, like the first time when you eat an Impossible Burger or Beyond Burger, you're like, well... It's not really a hamburger. It's not, it's not identical, but it's pretty good. But after you've eaten them two or three times, then you're like, well, it's not identical, but it's just as good. Yeah. You just get used to them and you like them. I don't even eat regular hamburgers anymore. Like even when I go to a restaurant, the first thing I ask them is, do you have Impossible Burger? Do you have Beyond Burger? 
because they're just as good. And I did it for 16 years. I ate uh, Boca burgers and uh, garden burgers. And, you know, the, the um, Greek one with the olives in there is so, so good. And to eat a regular hamburger seemed so greasy to me. Like it, and, it, and then when I tried to do it, it tasted, it always seemed so greasy. So it wasn't that I was really against the idea of eating them. It's just that I just didn't want them. Um, you know, I fell off that wagon a little while ago, but, um, none the, nonetheless, I totally, it is something we could do and you put enough a one and cheese on anything and you, you know, and it, it solves the problem. So yeah. uh, what are some of the other products that are being made, uh, or at least on the drawing board? Well, I tell you, we, we have collaborations now with two or three different companies, uh, midsoles for running shoes, uh, mattresses for, uh, you know, sleeping mattresses. Those are also polyurethane, uh, yoga mats. Um, trying to think of what else. Oh, um, polyurethane coated fabric. So raincoats, mm -hmm. uh, those are generally some sort of, I mean, we're going to make ours because they're biodegradable. We'll make the fabric out of cotton or something else that's biodegradable. So then we coat them with polyurethane. So we think we can make, you know, rain jackets and we, even rain boots if we wanted to. That'll be at the end of their life throw them in a compost pile and off they go back to CO2 and, and bacterial food. That's really cool. Well, the other side of this is that you're also, you're not just returning them to CO2, which kind of sounds like, you know, feeding into climate change and all that stuff, but it's coming from carbon that was sequestered from the environment. It, it, exactly. So what we do is we grow the algae up. It captures CO2 this year. It turns that into oils fatty acids and some small molecule isoprenoids. We extract those from the algae. We turn those into monomers. We turn those monomers into polyurethane plastics that we make shoes out of. And then at the end of that life, back into the compost pile to degrade. Now, I, I do want to, this is a little bit of a subtle point, but what does biodegradation mean? What biodegradation is a bacteria or a fungus secretes an enzyme that chops that polymer back up into little pieces. So one of the studies that we've been doing over the last few months is, well, what happens if rather than just throw that shoe into a compost pile, what if we took the enzymes that those bacteria and fungi are secreting and use those enzymes to depolymerize our polyurethanes? Could we then recapture the monomers out of that and resynthesize new plastics? And we've just been able over the last few months to show that at least theoretically we can do that. Whether we can do that at an industrial scale, that, that's yet to be discovered. But certainly theoretically, we can chop our polyurethanes back into the little pieces, recapture those pieces and make new monomers with them. That's really amazing. I, I really just am so excited about this potential technology. I absolutely love it. Uh, what is really... Um, if you had maybe a little longer vision, do you see this going into things mm. like uh, the plastic bottles that are the scourge of every dump and, uh, you know, that are the problems in the ocean uh, and things like that? Is that really um, where you're going eventually, potentially? Well, the, the only problem with water bottles is biodegradation requires three things, right? It requires a plastic that can biodegrade. It requires an organism that can biodegrade it. And it requires water. 24-7, right? People always ask me, well, your shoes biodegrade, but will they biodegrade on my feet? And the answer to that is no, because you don't keep them wet all the time. And just as an example, I always tell people, 
The reason there are mummies, you know, 3,000 year old or 4,000 year old bodies in Egypt is not because those people were not biodegradable. They were, but they didn't biodegrade because they were kept dry for the last, because they were in a desert that had almost no water. So they're still around 3,000 years later. Same, there, I saw a pair of shoes the other day that came from the Civil War. They look brand new because they're in a museum, they've been protected. If you would have taken that pair of leather boots and thrown those outside into a compost pile, they would be gone in a few years, right? So we can keep, you know, we, we can biodegrade these things, but we can also, you know, if, if we treat them right, keep them around. So the future, I would say, is people need to understand what are the things that the half-life of the material is proportional to the half-life of the product. So I don't want to make a pair of shoes, which I'm going to wear for two years, out of plastic that's going to stay around for 500 years, okay? Equally with a water bottle, I cannot make a water bottle out of plastic that can biodegrade because there's water inside it. So now I've got a plastic that can biodegrade and I've got water. Sooner or later, a microorganism is going to land on that and eat it. So water bottles are a challenge to make biodegradable. But that's okay. We can make those, you know, out of aluminum or we can make them out of something that we can recycle much more efficient than we do. But the one I'm most encouraged about is food packaging, right? So much of our garbage is single-use plastic, right? Meaning we buy it and use it one time. Every time you get a package from Amazon, right, that gets shipped, that packaging stays around for one day. And where does it go? Well, if it's cardboard, you can recycle it. All the plastic, mm -mm, that's going right back to the landfill. We can make that stuff biodegradable. Food packaging is the number one plastic pollution on the planet. Serves a really important function keeps food from getting contaminated, right? You wouldn't want to go to the store and buy a hamburger that's just sitting out exposed on the shelf. You want that in some protective packaging. But you're going to buy that at the store today. You're going to take it home and cook your hamburger, and then you're going to throw it in the trash. So that packaging is literally going to be around for 12 hours or eight hours. That's where I think we can make our biggest impact. If we can get biodegradable or fully recyclable by depolymerization recycling, like I talked about with the enzymes. That's the future. That's what we have to work on. Fortunately, all of the food companies know this, and we're working with several of the biggest that's really on the planet to see if we can. Oh, that's really cool. You know which one really breaks my heart every time I have to do it is the coffee bag. Because oh, it's yes. because I drink a lot of coffee. We go yep. through a couple bags a week here, and this bag is mm -hmm. this precision-engineered uh, poly, you know, polymerized, mm -hmm. like, I mean, it seems like I should be making it in the flower pots or, 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 or raincoats or something. <laughs> like I should be sewing yes. them together because it seems like there's so much technology just in that little bag and that that little bag is going to probably be around for a hundred thousand years. It, it, exactly. And, and that actually, that argument presents our biggest challenge that plastics are actually so functional right? Like you said, like you get that little coffee bag. That coffee bag is protecting your coffee from oxidizing. It's keeping it from getting wet, yet it's super convenient, right? Like one pound of coffee fits in something, you know, that you could hold in one hand. So it's super functional and it's really cheap. 
that coffee bag probably cost 12 cents, right? Where the coffee you're buying in it was 10 or 15 bucks. So of course, it's a challenge to get people to get away from that because it's functional and it's cheap. It's just bad for the environment, right? So that, that is our biggest challenge. How do you make packaging that is just as functional, biodegrades at the end of its life, but isn't so expensive that people can't afford or won't buy it? Well, when you look at this area of um, algae-based products or the uh, algae-based plastics, is this a growing area? And is this a place that if I've got, you know, if I have a real hotshot student who wants to be a leader in the field in five years, is this a place where I tell them to take a really good look? Absolutely. There is, uh, we were contacted by one of the world's biggest chemical companies because they wanted to come and talk to us about helping us scale up our polymers. And we're like, sure, come on out and visit. So they came out and we were talking with them. And one of my colleagues said to him, and he said, well, you know, I mean, you, you know, you, you do all of your plastics right now from petrochemicals. You know, are you guys really committed to going, you know, the bio route, like to, to get sustainably sourced, biologically sourced, you know, molecules that you can turn into plastics that'll be biodegradable. And he said, we paid a huge amount of money to do a study to find out what our future is. And that study came back and said that if we were not 100% bio sourced and 100% biodegradable within five years, we would be out of business. And we believed them. So when you hear that from one of the world's biggest chemical companies, that's, a, that's sort of a slap in the face. You're like, we're living in a different world, right? Yes, it's true that you, like I said, the practicality of meeting cost is always something you have to worry about, right? And competing with other things that, that are, you know, petroleum that is so cheap. But the world of consumers, all of us are changing our attitude. We are looking around, listen, I, I tell that story about going to the Maldives and seeing the plastic. Every single person I talk to has a similar story. Oh, I was in Africa and saw the same thing on the beaches there. Oh my God, I was in Iceland. And in Iceland, the beaches have plastic trash on them. And people are just fed up with this. I remember years ago, I was told by one of the vice presidents of Exxon when I was talking to him one day at a meeting. And I asked him what he worries about. And he said, well, we worry about a lot of things, you know, cost of petroleum, climate change, et cetera. He said, the number one thing I worry about is people only operate under two modes. They do nothing and then they overreact. And then he finished it by saying, and when they overreact, they take it out on me. <laughs> but what he, what, what he meant by that was people will put up with stuff for a long time, but at some point they just say enough is enough. And I think we've reached that tipping point on plastics. Right. And I hope we reach that tipping point pretty soon in climate change with some people are already there, but not everybody. But on plastics, I think it's universal. Everybody looks at this and says, I don't care who you are, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. You look at this and say, we cannot destroy our oceans by filling them with plastic garbage. It's bad for the oceans and ultimately it's going to be unhealthy for us. So we've reached that tipping point now where people are willing to pay a little bit more for a sustainable and biodegradable product. Well, this has been just fascinating. I really appreciate uh, your time that you would take to talk to me about this. It's, it's one of my favorite episodes already. 
hasn't really even been finished yet. If, if people want to learn more about what you do and your company or your, your research program, where would they look? So they can find us. We're at it's CalCab, C-A-L-C-A-B. And if you just Google that, you'll, you'll find our website. We also have three courses on Coursera under UC San Diego. One is called Our Energy Future. Uh, one is called uh, Introduction to Algae and the other is Algae Biotechnology. Uh, they're free to take. Uh, I think there's about 20 short recorded lectures in each one of those where you can kind of learn about algae biotechnology. And then the company that we started is called Algenesis, like algae and Genesis, Algenesis Materials. And you can also find us on the web and follow us there. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Stephen Mayfield. Thank you so much for joining me here today on the podcast. I really appreciate learning so much about where we are and uh, have another hopeful podcast for the future. Kevin, thanks so much for having me. And I hope all of your listeners have a little better appreciation for the wonderful world of algae. <laughs> and I think they do. Uh, if you do, uh, write a wonderful glowing review about it on iTunes. T send people over to this podcast. Share it through your social media. Get it on your Facebook page. Put it on Twitter. Get more people in our networks excited about the future of biotechnology or just uh, the future of technology as it applies to our major environmental problems. Uh, so thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.